Hello everyone, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Kimberly Roseblade, an instructor at the Academy of European Martial Arts in Toronto, uh, familiarly known as Emma. Um, and she has been seen at events, teaching at events like Sword Squatch, Long Point, and this. So without further ado, Kimberly, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's nice to see you. Um, so just to get us oriented, whereabouts are you at the moment? I am in uh, Toronto, Ontario, in mm -hmm. uh, Canada, sitting in my lovely um, garage that was converted into a laneway house where I'm very lucky to live. <laughs> okay. Uh, I imagine you're locked down like everybody else. You better believe it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, Kimmy, what made you want to start historical martial arts and how did that happen? So when I was a teenager, I started training um, with a different martial arts system. And at first, our particular club bounced from location to location, which is not uncommon for any budding martial arts school. Eventually, um, our club joined forces with a bunch of other clubs in Toronto um, in order to share rental space. And one of the clubs was a historical fencing club, actually, Emma. And oh. I was pleasantly distracted by them during my other martial arts classes over and over again and always had the idea that, you know what, especially since we're sharing the space, I should eventually join up with these folks because that looks really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, though, uh, that never happened because I, uh, I left martial arts for pretty much a solid eight or nine years after um, one of the instructors at uh, my very first martial arts school uh, sexually assaulted me. And I was one ah. of many women that mm -hmm. um, he targeted. Uh, and he was an adult and he primarily targeted people like me who were young teenage girls. Um, unfortunately for young femme presenting women who get involved in martial arts, this is uh, uh, not an uncommon story. So for years, I completely um, avoided um, anything involving that until I, you know, fast forward many years later, move across the country. I'm living in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, and I'm walking downtown and I pass by these beautiful glass-like huge windows. Mm -hmm. And I see a bunch of people fencing in there and what looks to be a falcon on a perch. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I'm like, well, I need to go in here. And yeah, sure. uh, that's when I discovered Academy Duello. And it just felt like the right time, the right mm -hmm. environment, completely new city to, you know what, I'd, I'd really missed um, studying martial arts. And I was like, you know what, now's the time to begin again. And that was in 2010. And mm -hmm. this being 2020 would be my one decade anniversary. And I'm well, really glad. Thank you. I'm really glad I came back. <laughs> okay. And so what were you training there? Uh, at Emma or at Academy yeah, uh, Duello? At Academy Duello, where in the beginning. So at Academy Duello, I actually, okay, my big secret, I actually started with Rapier. Okay, um, that's a good place to start. Uh, actually, it was. Um, mm -hmm. I really, really enjoyed it, but um, I also wanted to learn the longsword. I really liked um, the dynamics of some of the other programs that began combining mm -hmm. things like wrestling and dagger uh, as well. Also, um, after I got my when I became sick with lupus, um, one of the things I began noticing very quickly was a lot of the more um, one-handed and single-handed um, sword arts were yep. becoming a lot more difficult and harder on my joints. 
and yeah 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 so I mean, a one and a half kilo longsword in two hands versus a one kilo rapier in one hand it's yeah exactly um so i began shifting my focus away from the rapier and into primarily mm. fiore um okay. and i found a lot of happiness there but i also yeah, found that what i <laughs> what i learned with the rapier definitely helped me with a lot of the principles that are going to come into a any sort of uh, martial yes. art that involves you know <laughs> i wish i could get more longsword people to do rapier just like, even once just do, just do, yes. do one class and you never have to one touch it again <laughs> but you learn so much about blade relationship and absolutely yeah. Yeah. no i'm very i'm very happy that i that's how i started actually but i'm mm -hmm. also really happy with where where my path is now i'm finding okay. a lot of satisfaction okay so you segued more towards the fiori side of things um, yes so tell us a bit about that um so Around the time when I began really focusing specifically on um, Fiore and um, Academy Duellos, what they kind of call their longsword track, um, right. it's a little bit different uh, than other um, historical martial arts fencing okay. styles will sometimes yeah. uh, develop their curriculum, but though it's, it, it's quite, quite good. Um, I was also starting to transition into a new life or an old life back in Ontario when I decided mm -hmm. I was going to be moving back. Um, Long story short, the province in Ontario has much better um, free um, or socially uh, subsidized health care for someone like okay. me with autoimmune diseases than British Columbia did at the time. So it was just a, okay. a smart thing to go back. Um, sure. But I had been developing a relationship with the folks at the Academy of European Medieval Martial Arts after they had moved um, locations to a new place. And I was like, you know what? It's they were not the problem <laughs> yes. when I uh, sure. left martial arts and I knew that I wanted to keep studying um, when I made the move and I really liked how their program and curriculum really incorporated and early on in their students mm -hmm. um, the wrestling and the dagger aspects of yeah. Of Fiore, which was exactly where I was feeling I really needed to re start rounding out my knowledge of his system so it was it was extraordinarily bittersweet leaving Vancouver but to come into um, a space here in Ontario where I had other folks to learn with um, yeah. especially where I felt I was lacking was an absolute um, it was invaluable <laughs> excellent good mm -hmm. and so what are your main research interests and sort of historical inspirations periods that sort of thing so in regards to like the the sword play that we do um mm -hmm. my main interest is fury plain and simple mm -hmm. um out of the different um books and manuscripts that we have um emma primarily uses our our main resource as the getty manuscript but we absolutely compare stuff with some of the other manuscripts as well like yeah. the the Pisani Dossi is probably the one we'll compare with the most but sometimes yeah. the florius um it's just something that's very interesting when you'll see um, when the illustrations differ from maybe what the text says, but mm -hmm. you see it one way or the next, or as martial artists that are, re we are recreating something that has a lineage that was broken. So yeah. a lot of the time what we have to do, um, I'm going to get a little uh, wrestling nerdy talk with you, my friend. I believe, you get as nerdy as you like. Oh, goody. <laughs> so I believe it is the counter to the 11th play of Abrazzare where mm -hmm. um, you see the elbow push. Yeah, and in, yeah. in the Getty manuscript, um, yeah. 
He even says something like, you put your right hand under their left elbow, but the illustration clearly shows the opposite. So, you know, we had to sit there and break it down and also look at the floss and look at the PD where the illustration okay. shows, um, mirrors what the text does. So we tried out right. both. So we- I think, I think you're referring to the sixth play where, where there's a push coming into the face and no, 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 no. I know, the, I know, no? I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> so, so it's not that one. It okay. is. Oh, I lost you there. Hold on a second. My I'm right here. This one here. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So the leg lift. Yes. Uh... Okay. So yeah, it's like with the with the um the elbow push as well, and it's the counter to the eleventh. Yeah, sure. Although I know that in some translations yeah. they say it's the uh, the counter to the thirteenth. But anyways, yeah, we we sat there breaking it down, looking at okay, well let's the text says this, these illustrations show this, yeah. but in the Getty illustration it shows the opposite. Let's yeah. try both. Mm -hmm. When we tried both, they do both work. But when you actually go to the left elbow of your opponent, what you're allowed to do in that position is the way in which you are, are stopping the left elbow is also mm -hmm. simultaneously stopping the opponent's right hand because you're pushing it back into them. Whereas okay. if you only go for where the illustration shows with the right, you are yeah. still able to push, but they have their left hand available out to grab mm -hmm. you or potentially do a counter. So what we were able to what, uh, you know, in my opinion, I was able to do is say, okay, this is one of the examples where we're going to venture kind of away from the Getty. And as martial artists, when we tried out both, both work, but one is better. Let's go okay. with that. <laughs> sure. Okay. But, uh, sorry for uh, going in that little like nerdy no, side No, no, track, no, no, but... <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Um... You, you are amongst friends. Everyone <laughs> listening, I would imagine, is a sword person. So... <laughs> And if they're not interested in furious wrestling, then they damn well ought to be. And I, I do not I know, apologize. Right? <laughs> it's yeah. real. I love it. Uh, it's one of the yeah. things I've definitely missed the most. But um, the, the Getty is our primary source, and it's where I'm mm. usually getting a lot of my stuff from. But again, okay. especially when uh, in the wrestling section and later on in the Spear and Polax, I'm really yep. referencing some of the other stuff as, sure. as well. Or at least I have found I need to, to round out yeah. my own knowledge. Okay. So... But um, as for like other historical figures, as you know, it's uh, it's June and it's Pride Month. Yeah, sure. Uh, as you also know, I used to be a uh, a professional singer who toured yep. around before uh, before discovering this lovely thing called Hema. And there is an amazing woman known as Julie Dobney, who was mm -hmm. a bisexual, red-haired opera singing fencer and the moment that i discovered that this woman existed it was it was like fireworks so, went off i was like oh my goodness so are you actually a reincarnation then i would like to think so and if anyone is listening and has any inkling of of, of a hope to maybe create a movie or like a, an autobiography or something of her life i i volunteer as tribute okay yeah well, <laughs> tell, tell us something about her so she was the only child of um, one of Louis uh, Louis the Fourteenth's uh, secretaries at the time, and okay. uh, her father was also known as a a very very good fencer. 
mm-hmm. with Julie being his only child, um, he actually allowed her to take up fencing with the boys and mm-hmm. whatnot at court, which at the time as well was very... Um, it's unusual. It was unusual. It, it, it was unusual. Um, so I guess her first sort of like sordid love affair was actually with one of her fencing instructors in which she like <laughs> took off with him when she was a teenager. Oh and God, okay. her her life from there like just seems like um, such a, such an incredible like bardic tale of this woman that goes from town to town taking on many lovers, men and women. At one point even seduces um, a young woman whose father says, you know what, this is this is wrong. And as was done at the time, sends his daughter off to a convent. Um, We're just going to numb this out of you and take away the embarrassment from our family. And she, uh, Julie Diobny, who was also known as uh, Le Maupin, um, breaks into this convent. Mm -hmm. And the story gets like super crazy from here. Apparently, one of the elder nuns had recently passed away. Mm -hmm. So in, in true cartoon sort of like, you know, <laughs> storytelling mm-hmm. here. They grab the body of the dead nun and put it in her lover's bed chambers, you know, pull the blanket yeah. on top. And now what they have to do though is sneak out. So they start a small fire in the co- <laughs> convent to like distract people as okay. she whisks her lesbian lover away in the, <laughs> into the night. So of course she gets into trouble for things like, you know, arson awesome. uh, <laughs> so not necessarily a role model you want to stealing a dead body of. like like no. all these wonderful things yeah. um so she's supposed to show up for court but what ends uh-huh. up happening is the talent of of her her singing voice um mm-hmm. she has become well known within the paris opera company as a, a phenomenal singer and right. she gets the paris opera company to petition the king to pardon her right. from these these charges so that she continued yeah. to to sing in the uh that particular season that they were doing i just it's it's just so full-blown and wonderful and, like and was it successful <laughs> was she successful was she yes wow yes she was okay well and then, then we the don't French, they do love their opera don't they they do love their <laughs> they do love their uh... <laughs> oh, that's fabulous yes that mm. that is definitely a movie in the making oh it needs to be it absolutely yeah. needs to be we need yeah. more bisexual representation. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Okay. Um, so, if, if, if there are any other historical inspirations like that you'd like to tell about, please do. But otherwise... How, uh, do you, yeah? how do you top Julie Dobney? You don't. You don't. But, yeah, if, if you'd left with somebody else, we could have moved up to her. But no, no, yeah, no think, between Fiore and Julie, I'm good. All right, fair enough. Okay. My main man and my main lady. <laughs> Okay, then. so uh, one question I've asked um, pretty much all of the guests on this podcast so far, uh, and they, they all tend to have some pretty strong opinions. Um, what are your thoughts <laughs> on protective equipment, training tournaments at events, that sort of thing? All right, I'm taking a sip before I get into this. Yeah, you, if you want yeah, to talk okay. about uh, uh, strong No, opinions. no, no. No, we're happy to wait. We're building the tension. We're, oh, we're, yes. Oh, we're now yes. expecting something of an explosion. Um, okay, I think one of the first things I'm going to say is that um, we should not be relying on equipment alone to do the mm-hmm. job of protecting ourselves and protecting our partners and our opponents. One of the things right. that I try to drive into my students' heads is that we are the stewards 
of our training partner's safety, as well as we are the, steward, the stewards of our opponent's safety when mm -hmm. we are engaging in sparring. I feel in general mm -hmm. that this attitude is often completely dismissed from a lot of competitive HEMA circles. Sure. And on top of that, we have people who seem to equate power with better technique. Mm -hmm. um, we also seem to have a culture that has developed in the larger, we'll say hemisphere, <laughs> mm -hmm. that I believe is very toxic around well, don't get in the ring if you're not willing to get hit by a sword. Do <laughs> you know what? That's um, just like Neanderthal stupidity. It is. And you yeah. know what we're getting from it? Neanderthal-style Neanderthal concussions. Yeah, absolutely. On top of that, the equipment we're using... Now, I, I, I do use um, sport fencing masks, sure. uh, absolutely, because guess what? It's what we have, and it's better yeah. than nothing. Yeah. Those are not designed to take the sort of blows that we use as fiorists or as people studying KDF using weapons like a longsword or, God forbid, a poleaxe. Yep. These are meant for yeah. thrusts with a one-handed weapon. An 800-gram, very flexible one-handed weapon. Mm, yes! Yep. And, again, I'd rather be using that than not using anything at all. Sure. But... Considering the attitudes that I've seen, the equipment that we don't have readily available, unless you're doing Hans Fection specifically, yeah. um, we need to have a complete and utter culture change around how we are, as to what we are allowing and not allowing at events in regards mm -hmm. to heavy blows, yep. protective equipment, Yep. And really not being afraid to call people early on on aggressive, overpowering hits and to make actual penalties, yep. penalties associated with that. I've started to see more of it. And when I do, I'll also say that I've also seen some of the better, more cleaner fencing bouts um, oh, sure. at, at, at events that I've gone to. Yeah, I mean, you can you can fence safely with long swords and fencing masks if you understand it's a fencing mask your opponent's wearing, not a helmet. I can do with certain people that I really trust yeah. and at a speed that I know. Mm -hmm. I can very easy do the equivalent of Blosfechten um, with yeah. certain friends of mine, because one, we know each other. Two, we're not going to while doing these sorts of things go for crazy things like stout like there's there's just a level of already when you've when you've sparred with certain people or trained with certain people for a while mm -hmm. you've had lots of very good conversations hopefully about consent when it comes to what you're yeah, willing sure. to do like hey let's let's fight um you know what my back's bothering me so no takedowns to the ground yep. today or what well, whatever standard operating procedure and then there's some people that after you've worked with them for so long you you can dance with them 
and yeah. there's sure. a language of consent and asking and telling that doesn't necessarily have to be verbal, but that comes after a long, 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 long time hmm. of building those relationships. But again, I've been able to do this with certain people who, who have taken on a much healthier attitude about what we're doing, what we're trying to prove hmm. and why we're doing it. Okay. Yeah. So, so you would, you would be pleased to see an improvement in the fencing helmets available? Absolutely. That's the other thing is yeah. we mentioned that we don't have this equipment available yet. Let's change that. Okay. Well, we do have some. I mean, like the Terry Tyndall fencing mask is the only thing I ever use for longsword because it has a oh, suspension yeah, system. Mm. And, you know, thanks to a miscommunication with a student once, I did stand there completely still and got hit in the head as hard as he possibly could. It was just a, while I was demonstrating, it was just a, okay. was just a miscommunication. <laughs> I was demonstrating in front of a class, and what I meant was, you know, throw a fast blow and stop it. And what, he, what I actually told him to do was just hit me in the head as hard as he could. And he thought I was going to do something about it. And it was just one of, those, one of those, but I didn't. And I was wearing my, my Terry Tyndall fencing mask, and I felt my neck compress slightly from the force of the blow, uh -huh. just just, uh -huh. just slightly, right? And that was it. Still, it that can be... Yeah, 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 but it was it was more like, you know, there was a sense of pressure on my head. Yes, yes. And then it went away. And of course, the, the mask rang like a bell. <laughs> um, Does it ever. <laughs> right? But there was no... I'm not suggesting anybody try this at home. But no. I mean, if I've been wearing a fencing mask, I have, I've literally had the back of a fencing mask caved in and my mm -hmm. skull split by a longsword blow that wasn't nearly as hard, right? So... I have a fencing I, mask with a dent in it from yeah. just that as well. Yeah, I see I've got this scar here. Oof, <laughs> yeah, yep. Many years ago when I was young and stupid. Um, so so I, think, I think that the technical problem of getting decent head protection is possible, but as soon as you protect against that sort of impact, you're, you're not necessarily protecting so well against thrust to the face. Yeah. So with rapier, I wouldn't use my Terry Tyndall mask because nope. it, it acts as a lever and it kind of, and of course in longsword, you Although, also get Although, but there is thrust, especially blows. in Fiori's system. Yeah, but. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, so, I mean, there is no perfect system, but I think we could do a lot better te technologically. No, and especially if we take this from two different directions, which I really believe is the problem. We have a cultural problem around how we deal with heavy hitters and mm -hmm. lack of control um, yeah. versus the problems that we have with the sort of equipment that is not only readily available, but that is being uh, commonly used in fencing, um, like, you know, fencing cells that aren't sport fencing cells. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do you feel about the hand protection that's available? That's the other thing that people tend to talk about a lot. Uh, I think we're going... I think we're seeing a lot more stuff being developed now. Sure. Um, as someone that doesn't do a lot of competitive mm -hmm. um, tournaments and stuff like that, I don't necessarily have the same sort of opinions as other folks on a lot of the stuff coming out, sure. like the you know the pro gauntlet. Even though I've tried right. it on and it's it's very lovely, um, I was using a pair of Darkwood Armory um, metal gauntlets. Um, yeah. slightly articulated as well as a bit of a clamshell, but a lot of tournaments won't even allow 
It's a crazy thing. They, they won't allow steel gauntlets, but they allow concussive head blows. I will also say this as someone that... So, if you're going to close in on me into Gioco Stretto, yeah. and I'm yeah. a five and a half foot tall fencer, and you're on a six and a half foot tall fencer, I am going to use my other weapons... Of course. ...against you. Yeah. <laughs> I find it ridiculous that we will let each other swing three and a half foot metal rods at each other's mm-hmm. heads, but I can't even do an open-palmed straight to the head or to your body. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, 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 really, I really feel for the people organizing the tournaments, though, because they have... I do. They have an impossible job of balancing... You know, restricting things that they think people aren't trained to do safely, like, for example, falling. Absolutely. Um, and and yet, and sometimes when we do have a tournament where where it is explicitly stated in the in the sort of the the pub publicity for the tournament, this is to encourage wrestling at the yes. long sword. Yes. Right. And somebody executes an absolutely beautiful takedown and gets lambasted across the internet for dangerous fencing. When in fact he was doing exactly what the organisers of the tournament and that every competitor knew was kind of the point of the whole thing. And again, we're talk- I mentioned about consent earlier. Anyone going yeah. into that tournament went in going, hey, the point of this is to do yeah. wrestling at the sword. Therefore, yeah. I am consenting to maybe have that done to my body. Yes. Yeah, I see. My, <laughs> with my spine, there's no way I can do wrestling at that sort of level because the chance of an injury is just is practically certain. Yep. So I, I wouldn't even enter that tournament because nope. I know, I, you know, I'm trained to fall and what have you, but I wouldn't enter that tournament because nope. I am, you know, I'm not a good enough wrestler that I can be <laughs> certain not to be thrown. And I'm pretty <laughs> certain that, that the throw is likely to do damage. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we could do a lot better with, with tournament rules for sure. But this is, again, one reason why I've never run an open tournament. It's uh, as as someone whose you know primary study is Fure. The few tournaments mm. I've done, it's I'm seeing more of it now. But m- many of my first tournaments, I would be the only Fiorist right, in sure. the long in in the longsword tournament. Yeah. And a lot of the rules aren't. I I still I've still managed to medal without being able to do things like you know mm-hmm. pommel strikes or or wrestling or grappling. Yeah. But sure. it's it's the a large portion of the competitive uh, HEMA scene is, uh, was founded and run by primarily KDF um, yep. folks. <laughs> sure. And I'd like to see f- more variety for us fewerists. Let us do the things we, we, <laughs> <laughs> we've been training to do. Well, well, speak, speaking of variety, I mean, a lovely tournament um, format that we've done in my salad many times is the, basically everyone fences everyone. Mm-hmm. And the competitors can choose their weapons. So you can have any, you can have spear, dagger, longsword, polack, whatever you want, um, or wrestling. Mm-hmm. And the um, honor is gained by taking a harder fight. So, for example, if an experienced student takes a spear against a beginner with a dagger, the beginner is getting lots of credit and the experienced student is getting none. But I've actually, I actually saw a relative beginner, their opponent had a poleaxe, they had a dagger, and they won. 
It can right. be done. And it can be done. And, <laughs> and for the whole the whole thing was we had two prizes. There was a prize for the person who won the most bouts, and a prize that was done by secret ballot of everybody present, including the spectators, for first among the equals. person. Well, yeah, for the person who best expressed the spirit of the art. And the, the bigger prize went to the one who won the vote. Mm -hmm. um, because yes, it's important to win fights, but it's from a tournament as a training perspective, it's important, even more important to, um, you know, take the risks and do, you know, do the interesting things that you're going to learn from rather than the take the sure wins. Yep, I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, what has been your proudest moment in historical martial arts? There's a few. Um, okay. As an instructor, two of the biggest uh, proudest moments was one, uh, being able to teach at Long Point. That, sure. was, uh, that was amazing. You've got um, one over on me, Kimmy. I've never taught at Long Point. <laughs> Long Point is dead. Long live Long Point. <laughs> um, but another really big one was, um, as we mentioned earlier, that I just... Uh, uh, celebrated my 10-year anniversary, mm -hmm. and where I got started was in Vancouver at Academy Duello and yeah. uh, about every two years although I, this year they actually did it um, a, uh, a year in a row uh, Vancouver hosts the Vancouver International Swordplay Symposium mm -hmm. and I got to go and uh, teach this year in fact it was the first and only event I taught at in 2020 before the world before. shut down yeah. <laughs> and it was on the eve of my 10-year anniversary and it really felt like coming home to sure. come back to where I first started yep. and then to come back to be able to teach and share and collaborate with others uh, that felt really phenomenal <laughs> I bet. I bet yeah it excellent good okay so uh, you mentioned you know the shutdown and then Corona madness. Um, so, what effect has that had on your training, and where do you see things going in a year or so? Even before the shutdown, um, at, Emma was putting a lot of precautions in place. So, usually our curriculum rotated between uh, in the week we do mm -hmm. dagger, long sword, wrestling, long sword, dagger, long sword, wrestling, long sword. Mm -hmm. All dagger and wrestling classes were cut. Uh, uh, okay. Then all of our longsword classes, we were only doing um, any partner drills were only with Joko Largo. We wouldn't even go right. into stretto plays. And okay. after that, we did have to close down um, mm -hmm. officially. I think, I think when we first start opening up, uh, that might be exactly how we start things off again. Okay. The yeah, other my school in Helsinki is doing that. Um, we aren't even looking at potentially opening up until September, and that's looking sure. like we might even push that even further based on how the second wave and stuff hits. Yeah. The other thing is, um, is we need to be careful. Someone like me is immunocompromised. A lot of our okay. instructors are in their fifties as well. Right. Um, we have a lot of high risk members sure. uh, at our group. Not only that, even if we didn't, the responsible thing to do as someone teaching 
martial arts and talks about being the stewards of your, <laughs> your partner's safety. safeties. Uh, yes. That, that includes not infecting them with viruses. Absolutely. Ah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm thinking of that one sneaky Polax play where uh, the Polax the explodes the with the pa- yes. yes. Poison dust <laughs> comes out. Yeah. Even when respecting social distance, you can still get. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I laugh because it's very interesting to think of because I, I think until we get some sort of um, vaccine, it's really going to change how all martial arts are done for a while. Yeah, sure. um, I also think I, it'll probably affect the way that we... The knowledge that we're getting about uh, coronavirus is changing day by day, week by week. Mm-hmm. Um I think as we learn more about it as well, we'll be able to make more solid plans as to what our training or whatnot will look like. Mm-hmm. Currently, I'm teaching classes over Zoom. Yeah, me too. Um, I know some folks of mine who also teach martial arts classes. Uh, a friend of mine who primarily does like um, Wing Chun, he mm-hmm. started opening up spear classes in the park <laughs> because okay, yeah, yeah. it's outdoors and they can you know work a, yeah. work at things from um, a distance. Um, people are trying to be as adaptive as possible, but we we have limitations. Uh-huh. It's hard. Yeah, it's something I'm unfortunately used to as someone with an autoimmune disease when it comes to limitations that greatly affect my training it's just very hard to, to see this detail about that absolutely um okay. you know there are times when i i do weightlifting i i do mm-hmm. swimming i do cycling i'm a historical fencing instructor but i also have lupus which is an autoimmune disease which means my immune system can't recognize healthy cells and organisms from foreign ones or mm-hmm. uh, problematic ones so my body will attack itself this can come um very typically in lots of inflammation joint muscle pain mm-hmm. but this can also affect any organ or system in my body from mm-hmm. my central nervous system to my heart to my lungs Um, which also makes me extraordinarily prone to coronavirus. One of the things that we've seen with coronavirus is those that even survive the initial aspects of it, which are the respiratory infection. Mm -hmm. We have seen a lot of cases where if a person's immune system takes a hyperactive response to it, um, that's where we see a lot of the long-term organ damage and other stuff coming someone like me we already know that my immune system's initial response is to go oh no there's a problem well we better strap on the flamethrowers and kill it all with fire uh that's probably the best description of lupus i have ever heard (laughs) (laughs) it's like i only needed that small like mosquito you know yeah taken care of but my immune system's like but look at the good job i did i'm like putty now my house is on fire but thanks uh It's, it's, so it's something I have to very personally be very worried about uh, the long-term effects of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm used to having to change my training around whatever dice roll I managed to get that day and what my body is capable of. And it's okay. difficult, especially oh. on some days where it's hard to believe sometimes that I'm the same person who one day was like... I squatted my own body weight and then I taught like a fitness class and then I sparred my friends and then the next week brushing my hair feels too painful because the joint inflammation is oh God. 
is wow. so intense. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my um, a lot of my career as a martial artist, because I got diagnosed within the first four years of me picking up historical martial arts, has been learning how to adapt around mm -hmm. a, a very unpredictable um, sure. uh, restrictions. Do you have any advice on that for people who might be listening who may have similar things? Um, first bit of advice is talk to your own ego and <laughs> yeah. let yourself know that you, you cannot be the sort of martial artist other people can. Okay. You, that's, it does, this doesn't mean you cannot do this. This does not mean you cannot succeed and do very well but you cannot train the same way other mm -hmm. people can, and that's okay. Listen, learn how to listen to your body. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. There are days where I can teach a class, but I know that just afterwards, sparring is not on the table. My, okay. I can teach what I know, but I'm already noticing a, you know, a reaction with my body. My, my, my motions aren't responding as fast as I would like when I think. So yep. that's okay. It doesn't mean that I don't have to not do anything. It's right. learning to understand that like, it's a, and this is hard for all of us to learn how to say no, especially to ourselves when mm -hmm. we want to do something. Figure out what training looks like for you on a bad day. What does your individual limitations look like? Is this, because everyone's got different things. Do you have arthritis? Do you have lupus? Do you mm -hmm. have a cognitive disability um, that can affect um, motor control? Figure out how you respond to things and what potentially changing the focus of your training might look like. If you're fortunate enough, find an instructor or coach at your club that's willing to work with you to figure these things uh, out. I would hope also, that every coach or instructor would be willing to. Yeah, you'd like to think. You'd like to think. Really? Okay. Is that not the case? I think that in martial arts and historical European martial arts and fencing is not necessarily um, exempt from this. There is this idea of only the baddest asses uh, and yeah, the most, I don't want you as a student if I can't eventually have you winning gold medals or doing right, this. Yeah, or yeah, do yeah, yeah. The, the trophy hunter coaches, okay. Yeah. yeah, not just the trophy hunter coaches. Um, a lot of coaches and teachers um, end up in that role by accident. Um, it doesn't mean they're not talented fencers. You can be very good at a thing and be horrendous at explaining and teaching it. True that. So now take someone who has an issue, maybe arthritis, so they're having trouble with how to grip their sword or they're having issues with um, certain ways they have to move their body or, or dealing with uh, very heavy percussive blows and how that feels mm -hmm. uh, on their joints, on top of maybe being a beginner. A lot of coaches will just get frustrated, not because they, they hate the student, but because they it, this is not an easy answer. They can't say, well, just do this, or uh, okay. that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, a lot of the time students with disabilities either drop out yep. or kind of get pushed to the sidelines. Sideline, yeah. Yep. 
it's also as coaches understanding that you know what that might not be your gold medal student but you can you can still over time progress them through not only different ranks in your school but ask them why are they doing this do you want to be a gold medal student or oh did you just decide that you would like to do something physical in your life now that you've turned 40 you've played dungeons and dragons since you were a teenager and the idea of twice a week showing up to swing a sword around feels like a great way to do this you have just as much value to me yeah sure and that pursuit is just as noble as wanting to eventually opening your own school or winning medals or mm-hmm. what have you. At least I think so. No, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I have opinions, guy. <laughs> yes, and I'm very glad you're willing to share them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not that that's ever been an issue. I know, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so uh, there's a, a question that I tend to finish up with um, just to see how people think. Everyone seems to have an answer for this. Uh, <laughs> somebody gives you a million pounds, dollars, or pick some enormous sum of money um, yeah. to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. What would you do with that cash? Oh, what I would do with that cash. So the first thing I would do is I would try to buy some sort of property um, where there's like little cabins and whatnot so that I can start hosting chemo retreats, but also have a ongoing school there. One of the things I'd love to be able to do is to bring in instructors for up to maybe a month at a time, give them room Mm. and board, sort of like a retreat center and constantly have people able to show up to whether they're traveling in have Mm. and again they can rent these little kind of like bunks and cabins and whatnot Mm -hmm. and and constantly be able to have the money and the ability to bring in like instructors of different historical martial arts to teach Mm -hmm. have ongoing classes um regular students who might be local but also the ability to bring in different students from different places from around the Mm -hmm. world to me the best thing that we can do is martial arts artists is collaborate and learn from as many others uh, as possible. I don't want to learn in a vacuum and I don't think it's good to learn in a vacuum. Okay. Um, So you create a center somewhere in the countryside with cabins and uh, presumably training halls and Absolutely. And I want to have... I'd want to have a scholarship program to bring Mm -hmm. in um, lower income folks. If I also had a bunch of money, I would love to contact a bunch of my favorite schools around North America and Europe and be like, hey, guess what? I am buying you about a dozen um, of these sorts of masks, these sorts of swords, these sorts of this, so that you have these available for brand new students who come Mm. in and need to like... Just any way to make HEMA more accessible excites the heck out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that that, that would be money well spent. Okay. Um, All right, I think you might need a bit more than the million quid, though. You did say any other exorbitant amount, so I completely Uh, went off the deep end with that. Give me an inch and I'll take a mile. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) So so you'd start with like a retreat center for... Training Historical Martial Arts, which has a visiting instructor program. Yeah. So people can come and... And a scholarship tip. program as well yeah. for um, lower-income there, there students. Are, there are places like that for other things. Like, I know, so I know it's possible. Like, like even for woodworking, for instance. Yep. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, yes, I like the sound of that. <laughs> I know, 
Oh, me too. Can I come? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Kimmy. That was really interesting. Um, <laughs> is, do you have any any last interesting. words? Interesting. I'm the glad listeners? that's the uh, descriptor uh, you used. It was it was fascinating <laughs> and and insightful and all sorts of other things as well. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> setting fire to convents. I mean, okay. <laughs> not not everyone goes there. Um, okay. So, is there any any last words you'd like to send out to the listeners? Yeah, okay. uh, I'm going to use this moment. Uh, happy Pride, folks. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. Okay. And HEMA is for everyone. I agree on all three counts. Excellent. Thank you very much, Kimberly. That was lovely. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Kimberly. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And tune in next week when I'll be talking to Rigel Ng, who is the president of the Pan-Historical Martial Arts Society of Singapore. So subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to do us a favor, please review and rate the podcast so that other people are more likely to find it. I will see you next week.